Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons, and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Simon Mulligan, who is the most recorded pianist for the Steinway and Sons Spirio, the world's finest high-resolution player piano. Mulligan is an accomplished classical pianist and chamber musician, but is also fluent in a wide variety of musical genres. I spoke to him at my apartment in New York City. Oh, Simon, thanks for joining me today. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Man. Welcome, yeah, welcome to Soundboard. Thank you, Soundboard listeners. <laughs> I'm here all week. What a pleasure to be here. Simon, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> You're <laughs> on the Steinway and Sons soundboard. Thanks Pleasure for joining me. to be me. here. Hello, listeners. Hello, everybody. This is my real speaking voice. Simon is not putting on airs. He's like this all the time. Uh, yes, got to talk proper. Simon, you're here today, well, for many reasons, but of note hmm. to Steinway and Sons, you are the top recorded performer on the Steinway and Sons Spirio. Wow. For, for those not yet in the loop, Steinway and Sons Spirio is a high-resolution player piano. And the catalog for Spirio lives in the cloud and is updated monthly for Spirio owners. And chances are, if you update it, some of those updates will be from Simon Mulligan. Because you're a beyond a triple threat. You play classical. <laughs> you play jazz. You play standards. You play Broadway. You play rock and roll. And what I like about the Simon Mulligan played tracks are that you are not a tourist in any of these genres. It never sounds to me like, oh, here's a classical guy playing jazz, or here's a jazz guy playing classical, or here's a standards guy trying to fake his way through Chopin, or here's a a box specialist trying to play Thelonious Monk. I want to know, how did you develop this easy fluency across the borders to make them sound so porous? Well, well, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for that introduction. How much do I owe you? That's a a lovely question as well. I've always been a huge fan of boring old technique Mm. and scales and exercises. Scales, chords and arpeggios. Yeah, and Hannon the mm. and uh, Anon and Pishner. Cherny, you a Cherny guy? No, I didn't do okay. Cherny, right. but uh, well, not against Cherny, um, <laughs> but it's difficult to say for a start. Um, Cherny, I believe versatility comes from a versatile technique, which means as strong fingers as possible. So, as any good classical piano teacher would say, to play triple pianissimo, you need very strong fingers and um, that obviously helps with stamina and I've always enjoyed playing such a variety of styles and improvising as well when my hands couldn't stretch an octave when I was a horrible sprog so I I was also introduced to such a variety of music from an early age also my great aunt had an antique shop in London and she would often come to the house with piles of dusty sheet music also got my first piano from uh, shop uh, a Thomas Harper piano, and I'm three, four years old, and looking through whatever the pop songs of the day were. So there'd be Scarlatti, Cliff Richard, John Denver, Scott Joplin, real mix. And I just enjoyed sight reading and bashing through these things. And um, and if I found it 
too difficult. If I couldn't say stretch an octave as I couldn't for Scott Joplin piano rags, I'd play sixth intervals instead. And and list second Hungarian Rhapsody. There's no way I was going to play that in C sharp. I'd put it into C minor and you know and started with the the Tom and Jerry bit first. That was you know Bugs Bunny both used in both continents. And I think listening is so important to helping the different styles with each other. So and thankfully my teachers, various wonderful teachers I've I've had haven't stopped me from playing different genres, even though I began as a classical pianist, still am a classical pianist, since I was 11 or so, I've had a jazz band of some sort. I began with Cy and his Dixie Stompers. That's mm, my first little sure. Dixieland. You've probably heard of them. Um, yes, and I would write out little arrangements for alto sax player, a clarinet player. So, yes, I'd, I loved, I've always loved luscious harmony and chromaticism and and I've been a bit of a theory nerd and I love just being a sponge and absorbing it as much as I could and my parents certainly appreciate music they don't really play my dad briefly played British dance bands and my mum worked in the BBC music and arts department so there were always people coming to the house in the arts and I was certainly brought up listening to a variety of music at home on their records and as we know, music is very, it really is quite similar in many ways. So the uh, chord sequence laid down by uh, Paco Bell will be then used in a pop song or a few dozen pop songs in the 20th century, as we know. Um, and the fluidity aspect goes back to what I was saying about strong fingers and having strong fingers allows you to do impressions, really, of different pianists, say. What goes into an effective impression of a pianist Um, unpack that idea wow yeah well let's take uh, some modern day pianists whose songs I've recorded for the Steinway's Mario Elton John what makes Elton 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 his wonderful songs for a start and um, his knowledge of musical harmony like me he went to the Royal Academy of Music and his technique I can hear, and obviously we can now see on YouTube, um, it's very from the forearm and the wrist, and, and I'd say a similar thing to Billy Joel-type approach, and there'll be a strength and a full sound, voicings, a certain knowledge of harmony that is maybe not as, say, it, it's a different knowledge to, say, the Keith Jarrett's of the world or the other jazz Musicians, it, it's um, building blocks that work well in a structure and a song and format. And, and when I record for the Spirio, it's lovely having a lovely instrument to record on that gives so much back with the nuance and the colour. And so I'm taking, first and foremost, say in the case of um, one of Elton John's songs, I'm taking his music and I want to create my version on a Steinway grand piano that is going to be flawlessly played back with no loss of detail on the Spirio. But at the same time, thanks to the gloriousness of a Steinway piano, you can add things and keep it in the realms of good taste without going too outside the box. Bohemian Rhapsody, not quite a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) They were were very fast and loose with with events, but still a powerful motion picture. I think, Absolutely. For, and and for me, uh, let's 
step outside of music for a moment. Remembering the AIDS crisis of the 80s, which is now in our rearview mirror, but just sort of recalling how terribly that was handled in the United States, that was enough to get me mm-hmm. uh, reflecting, musically speaking, a very powerful telling of Freddie Mercury's story. It made me go watch the Live Aid performance yeah. on YouTube. The amount of electricity in Radio Gaga yeah. from that performance. Fantastic. You really, one, one forgets his unlikely onstage charisma yeah. that, that, that Mercury had. But you recently recorded some Queen tracks for Spiria with, I think, uh, the blessing of uh, Queen, Queen member Brian May, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we, we hope it's approved and, and doesn't get <laughs> shut down immediately. Yes, and it, it was lovely to get immerse myself in really listening to those songs. And, and here I am trying to recreate... Bohemian Rhapsody, that's a long song. You know, it wasn't the longest in the airwaves of the day. And there's a lot going on with not just changing harmony and sections, there's the uh, backing vocals and the lushness of those and the percussion. and the It's great. And I enjoyed listening and actually wrote this one down and I brought my scribbles with me. Um, <laughs> I think the piece of music works so well as a and a Freddie Mercury said how it was a number of songs that he just cobbled together really the unfinished tunes um and there are themes throughout the chromatic do 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 that chromatic shape um returns and harmonically it goes all over the place but works very well and i obviously wanted to show the piano part in it and the thing i always find interesting when playing vocal melodies on the spirio you think well i've got you know, I could play the vocal melody at the pitch the singer's singing, or I could play it an octave higher. And so I always go for variety in that. But Freddie Mercury's voice obviously has a huge range in itself. Yeah, one, one of the biggest. Yeah, and there was no need to play this tune in a sort of say, Chopin-esque sort of classical way, which you, I could do, but I think that would be irrelevant for the purpose of this particular recording. And listening to those harmonies and trying to get it exactly right and, and it, it's 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 complex stuff it's lovely and so the famous piano after the introduction and the b flat broken arpeggio on the piano and and i wanted to get it accurate of course but it didn't i didn't want it to sound like a hodgepodge of too much going on mm-hmm. in the same area of the instrument and a lot of that you can show with color and i like to um distribute the melody in the harmony if the harmony is above the vocal line which it is a lot in queen's songs you hear the the bvs all sort of close sort of different inversions and they're above the melody so i you can show that to an extent but not if it's all sharing the same notes so i play the melody with like the left hand or share it with the first and second fingers of the right hand and voice it as you can on a stunning way more gently in the top and and but ultimately the whole thing's got to sound effortless and fluid and um, that's the nature of what we do
that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? Once once we get past the notes, once we're not worried about the notes and the technique. <laughs> yeah. When you when you're just a hundred percent focused on interpretation, that's when the, the magic can happen. Yeah, right? it's 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 nice and, and doesn't matter how much you prepare a song, um, particularly a pop song. It's totally different to preparing a classical piece of music in that you have a you want to stick to your notes on the page and you you improvise ways of portraying those printed notes in classical music. In pop music, you never know how the band wrote the song. They they have different versions, different recordings. Freddie Mercury certainly would extemporize in his vocal renditions of different performances. I'm not going to listen to every performance of Bohemian Rhapsody on the internet. You're going to take one and realize how much uh, scope there is for variety within the realms of what he he would himself have done. I think is important as well. It's keeping it in in that sort of area of uh, effective listening and make and, and it's got to work on its own. You don't want people to think, this sounds terrible, played by just a piano. Mm. You want people to think, hey, I never realised this worked, played on a piano. And there are versions, there's many ways of doing it. You can play it, I could add rippling arpeggios, um, make it more virtuosic and more sort of, dare I say, listy, and that's a horrible word, but, you know... To, so people think, wow, look at him, and his hands are going, but that's hideous in my mind. And I could play it in the style of Chopin, all sort of, oh, look, aren't I clever? And I'm putting it in, and I, I can do all that, but I think it's horrible. Poor You're still taste. trying to serve the the song in the same way that you would serve a, a Chopin ballade with the notes on the page. Yeah, yeah, you want to stick to what they did, to push the barriers, you know, stretch the, the harmony... And the uh, rhythm, well, in Bohemian Rhapsody, hardly at all because of what it is. It's a very set, sort of symphonic work in a way, or opera, you know, it's so vast. And so, so for example, yesterday I recorded We Will Rock You. So there's, oh. there we are. How do I portray, you know, a rock groove with no harmony until Brian May's guitar solo comes in? And the little, little keyboard thing earlier on. and but it's very sparse, and intentionally so, and that's what makes it effective. I don't think there's anywhere in that song where you think, I think it really needs a <laughs> subito pianissimo with a little sort of <laughs> ralentando, so, um, whatever. You know, you're not going to... It is what it is. Yeah, keep it clean. Keep it what it says on the can, something, yeah. <laughs> the song, he, Freddie Mercury's singing on a D and an E, so um, I thought, let's make it an E minor... 70 minor sort of dominant seven uh, type funk blues <laughs> funkish sort of feel add some more syncopation without getting too crazy and I add that towards the end the blues scale lends itself well Freddie Mercury sings very pentatonically let's add a few you know filthy notes to that and I hope that will when people hear that they'll think yeah this works now I wouldn't uh, again I wouldn't put um Gregorian chant behind it and be all sort of uh-huh. big disgrace, you big all over your face. It's got to stay in a certain f- flavour. So. Yeah, yeah. There's another challenge that you face when you're covering a pop song, which is there's a standard version of that. There's a version of Bohemian Rhapsody that we can all access on record, and and that is the Naplus Ultra of that song. Yeah. Whereas going back to our Chopin ballads. It's on the page. 
and there may be definitive recordings, but Chopin himself did not throw the ballads onto wax yeah. back in the day, no. right? So, in a way, every classical piece is a cover without having access to that prototypical recording. Yeah. Whereas here, of course, you you have the classic rock record. So, how do you... I think it's giving life to both pieces of music, and whether the music was written hundreds of years ago or decades ago, you're saying to the listener, hey, this is fantastic music. And I say that to students now. When you go out and you play fur release to that bunch of miserable-looking examiners, that's your time on the stage. This is all cliché stuff, but it's so true, and I'm passionate about it. You've got to say, hey, listen to this fantastic piece of music that you've never heard before by Beethoven. Listen to this song called Bohemian Rhapsody that you've never heard before. Chopin, Ballard, whatever. You never always have that freshness and attitude to performing, and um, and I love that in so many pieces of music. Whether you're playing them every night, I mean, when when I used to tour with Josh Bell, we obviously repeated repertoire, but every night there'd be something new to pull out of the bag, and it could be something that you discuss, but more often than not, it was little surprises, like taking an extra nanosecond here creates an imbalance, a happy imbalance at the end of that phrase. And Is that a way to keep the material fresh for yourself? Definitely, yeah. You know, name dropping, yeah. But my Sony record um, back in 2001, two, I did some piano and orchestra arrangements of classical tunes. So I took pieces like um, the second movement of Shostakovich's second piano concerto. I left that alone. I did that with an orchestra. Leave, the, leave that as is. I'm saying to the non-classical market out there, yeah, this is a great tune. But then I took the second movement of the Pathetique Sonata of Beethoven and added a, an orchestral part to it. Well, I'm proud of it, you know, I, and I kept the piano part pretty much the same. I changed one sneaky harmony, you know, like there's one which is screaming for a flat nine chord nine, and I put it in and it, it was like, yeah, I just thought, I want it. And uh, <laughs> that's an example of great music that I felt could benefit from another instrumentation reworking. I would never jazz up Beethoven or Bach or anything like that. There's no need. There's so much in the music that speaks for itself that that is saying to you, the performer, and eventually the listener, there's a lot of mileage in this. And that's the case with... Bohemian Rhapsody and, um, and any masterwork any masterwork yeah a lot, a lot of mileage in this is, is a good way of saying and like a great book or a great film or a great you know no one tires of looking at great great art you know why is this piece of art popular why is Ferrellese popular why whatever it may be because <laughs> it's there's mileage there's, there's we hope centuries of love to be and nurturing to be gained from this work of art and I like that that's why I do what I do I my son who's 11 you know I he keeps me feeling young and I I still feel 11 in many ways because I'm playing music that I enjoyed playing when I was 11 and now I'm I'm an old crusty man of 46 and I'm thinking right I should be learning this I should there's more than one lifetime's worth of music out there and I'm sure you're like me you know guilty of buying second-hand records and books and you think, oh, I don't care. You know, it's this sort of, sort of feeding the soul and, and it's lovely to 
get into music, immersing myself, say, in Bohemian Rhapsody uh, and other Queen songs I did, um, Who Wants to Live Forever, beautiful, what a beautiful song that is, and uh, for the Highlander movie. It's lovely, the little Michael sort of quirks and and shapes and the, what the French horn does when the strings are going one way, and, and it's luscious, and I hope I brought that off on the Spirio piano. And um, it's nice to, and it's enriching, and this whole love of, that I have of this recording project for Spirio is the opportunity to, first of all, commit something to this incredibly fantastic technology that I hope will still be being played and listened to 300 years from now. And it's nice to, and I love the whole recording process in general, and I get very relaxed in it. I, I go the opposite of nerves. I don't get really nervous or anything musical, which sounds arrogant, but it's I, I get so worked up in a good way. It's but that's experience too, isn't yeah. it? When, when, I bet when you first started to play live, you would perform much worse than when you played by yourself. And then I think we get to a point where we can actually play better in front of people. You know, interesting, you say that, yeah, I've never... I haven't thought about that much until recently because I have my piano at home. I play differently now rather than, oh, I've got to create a a worthy performance of this Queen song. I think, no, I'll save that for the recording session. I like to save that. And I, and I say that to students. You want to be very prepared, but so much of that comes from your technique and being physically prepared. Always expect the very, very element of giving a performance or... A, going into a recording studio is is leaving a big part of it to chance, fear, standing on the edge of the tightrope, walking, whatever you want to call the analogy. You're saving spontaneity. You're saving spontaneity, exactly. And don't be afraid of that. And therefore, when a cell phone goes off in the audience, I'm not afraid. Just go with just, it. Yeah, you just, yeah. I could be obnoxious and play the Nokia theme tune in my bark. Got by variations, but I don't. Yeah, you just think, oh, it's called. It's, hey, be great. You're live. playing. To, yeah, you're yeah. playing to an audience, and that's great. And um, Thelonious Monk only liked first and second takes. Yeah, we are. After that, yeah, it's like what the the gold is out there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Good, very, very exactly, very true. And uh, I'm like that too. Yeah, I'm too expensive for a third take. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> I'll take my check now, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, um, drops microphone, walks out of the room. Good shit. <laughs>
been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard performances by Steinway artist Simon Mulligan of his arrangements of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody and Who Wants to Live Forever, as captured and played back by the Steinway and Sons Spirio, the world's finest high-resolution player piano. To learn more, visit steinway.com slash spirio. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at Steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.